Welcome to the Wanderer Learn Podcast. I'm your host, Francis Tapon. In this episode, I have the founder of Gossamer Gear. He and I hike up a mountain in San Francisco, and along the way, I recorded the whole conversation. And it's a fun conversation. We talk about so many different things. For example, we talked about what his lightest backpack is. You'll never guess how light it was. It's in, absolutely incredible. He talked about why Gossamer Gear has gone to heavier gear options. What are some of the cool fabrics that are on the horizon? how to get sponsored. Everybody wants to know that. And he talks about how you can convert quickly to metric. What's his favorite backpack? And also, what are some things that were unexpectedly hard about starting a backpacking company? That he talked about how he almost died twice and also his coolest invention, which is the crotch pot. You got to listen to this episode. It's hilarious. It's fun. And you'll learn a ton. Welcome, everybody, to Glen Van Pesky. Today, we are going for a little hike, a stroll, maybe, with Glenn Van Pesky, the founder of Gossamer Gear. Welcome, Glenn. Thanks, Francis. It's good to see you again. Glenn actually met me at the end of my Pacific Crest Trail hike in 2006 uh, in Campo, Mexico, on my southbound hike. And he drove all the way out from San Diego, which is uh, at least two hours, right? Yeah, pretty close. Yeah, and uh, then we went back to his house, and uh, it was great. Uh, he's he's uh, sponsored my little escapades for over a decade now, and so. Uh, but I haven't seen you in probably almost a decade. <laughs> well, and I actually hiked on the PCT with you briefly. Uh, met you on the trail, which was amazing that you can find someone on the 2,600 mile trail. But yeah, I found you hiking north. I think you were hiking south. I've that was a yo-yo, I think, wasn't it? No, I don't think it was the yo-yo. That was, the yo-yo was on the CDT, on the Continental Divide. But um, but yes, you, you went north, and we were running a bit late, and you kept hiking higher and higher and higher, and finally we, you ran into us, and then you turned around and hiked back with us. Right. I remember the. Uh, I remember seeing you, and I think you were carrying uh, an old G5 or something upside down because something had ripped out. Uh, it was a murmur. Murmur? Okay. And you being creative, like, well, uh, you know, it still has a drawstring, so that's now the bottom, and uh, made it work. Yeah, exactly. It was, I can't remember how, that was probably a five-ounce backpack, and so, yeah, the bottom had torn, and yeah, we just flipped it upside down, and, and there was only like five pounds of gear in it, so it was not a problem. I, I I just always remember that image of, of like as you're coming into view, looking at the packs, like well it's kind of familiar, but it's not quite right. What's trying to figure out what was going on? So um, you've kind of pioneered this whole super ultra light category. So I would say Ray Jardine is kind of famous for having popularized the ultra light category, but you took it to a whole new level. How light have you gone on your the most extreme hike? Uh, well, I've done uh, under three pounds base pack weight, so that's everything but food and water. Um, I had a plan to do under two. I actually had a gear list. Uh, figured I'd be, you know, I'd do a section through the desert and then hike at night, uh, so you don't need a sleeping bag or shelter, um, and then just sleep during the day. Uh, but the buddy who was going to go on that trip with me, I forget, he couldn't go. So I thought, well, if I'm by myself, you know, two pounds might be a little light. So, uh, so I went with three pounds. So I did a, I've done a trip on the PCT for, uh, I don't know, it was three or four days with the sub three pound base pack weight. 
That's remarkable. I mean, I did what's called a, there's this guy named Steve Chase who he uh, took up finally, it took me 10 years to take up on my one kilogram challenge uh, for El Camino de Santiago de Compostela. And that was, uh, and he actually took up on it. So that's a, one kilogram is 2.2 pounds. And he actually took me up on it. Finally, I, I said that somebody could do it because on El Camino Santiago, there's, there's basically huts along the way. And you can even, uh, all you need to do is bring a sleeping bag or a blanket really, because you're inside of uh, like a uh, hut that's kind of warm, especially in the summer. And uh, so you can actually get it. But, but you, what, what's impressive about you is that you're doing this when you're actually carrying a shelter, right? For, for under three pounds. Uh, you know, I'd have to look at the gear list, you know, in the summer doing across the Mojave section of the Pacific Crest Trail, you don't really need a shelter. I mean, it's not going to rain. So, um, but my typical shelter I take is only 2.7 ounces. So, you know, it's not a lot of weight, um, but still, is, the, that, is that a poncho tarp? Uh, no, it's just a, a Dyneema composite fabric uh, wedge, kind of a single side A-frame, not A-frame, but uh, just a very small tarp, basically. So, Glenn, uh, tell me about Gossamer Gear's philosophy. What makes you unique compared to many of the other backpacking gear manufacturers out there? Well, I think part of it was we were kind of one of the first. I mean, now I... I originally started making my own gear just because you couldn't buy really light stuff back then. And now, you know, there are so many cottage manufacturers out there doing some really incredible and creative things. I mean, at, at Gossamer, our goal is just to help people get into the outdoors and enjoy it more with less weight. So um, our goal is to, you know, make it more accessible to actually get into the backcountry. Many people in today's busy world only have, you know, they get limited vacation, maybe they have a three-day weekend, and, you know, if you're carrying a 15-pound pack instead of a 50-pound pack, uh, you can go further in the backcountry and take advantage of the days you have to really enjoy some of the amazing natural resources we have here. That's true. And a lot of people think that going light is just about going fast, but it's not necessarily the case. No. And, you know, people do, people go light for different reasons. I have a friend who's a professional photographer and for him, less gear and, and lighter equipment means he can take his heavy cameras and get great pictures because um, that's what's important to him. So, you know, it's, it's just whatever people want to do, but if you can lighten up your equipment, you have more choices, more options. Golight was one of the companies that was also a pioneer alongside with Gossamer Gear. And then eventually they, they, they started going heavier. And then eventually they, they kind of went out of business. Now, you guys also have, over the years, added a bit more weight and robustness to that. Tell, us, tell people why that is. Uh, well, and you you obviously have personal experience, kind of as we touched on, with a, a really light pack on your southbound PCT trip uh, falling apart. Um, and so, you know, when you, some of the early G4s were, you know, 11, 13 ounces um, for the pack, which was super, super light. Um, but when you get to those really light gear, it requires... Under 8 ounces? Yeah. Uh, you know, it requires a special level of care. I mean, you, you have to kind of baby the stuff. And, and not everyone is 
uh, willing and, and able to do that. So, you know, rather than just make uh, gear for the super elite, you know, few hikers, we want to, again, make it more accessible. So, you know, we started uh, using more durable fabric. And there have been changes in uh, the technology, too, where you can get now much more durable fabrics. Um, you know, we were the first manufacturer to use uh, sailcloth in the outdoor industry because we were looking for lighter and lighter stuff. But, you know, now with the carbon reinforced and I mean, it's just amazing what you can get for the weight. But our stuff has gotten heavier over the years just, uh, you know, for that durability so that people people have that comfort level and even if they can't baby the gear uh, they can still lose some weight and get into the backcountry. It's a bit about physics in other words the, if you want to make it tougher in general you got to make it heavier in most cases. In most cases yeah I mean obviously there are exceptions with materials but yeah general rule if it's lighter it's, it's you know it's more fragile yeah. yeah. Um, and so, but at the same time, in your recent lineup, 2019, you are inter reintroducing, if you will, also pretty light packs. Yeah, we're, we're always conscious of the weight. And so, you know, we try not to just gratuitously make things heavier. I mean, we're always looking at what's the function. Uh, is this necessary? Is there a lighter way to do it? And um, in many cases, we've had special fabric woven for us uh, that gets us the same performance at a lighter weight. And then we are um, coming out. I just looked at uh, samples of uh, the one and the two on uh, in uh, Dyneema composite fabrics, uh, Cuban fiber. So, uh, you know, those will be uh, much lighter versions of those shelters. And then I'm working on some you know, personal projects to, you know, my goal is a, is an eight ounce one person tent. So, uh, I think we can get pretty darn close, but we'll see how we go. Wait a second. Back in the day, I remember you making a tent called the one and the whole big idea was that it was going to be one pound and you just barely made it. I think it was, I can't remember if it was 17 ounces or. Yeah, you remember correctly. It was 17 ounces. Yeah. But oh, you whipped. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Yeah, we were rounding. Uh, and then that got, you know, over the years, um, we were using uh, special sailcloth fabric, uh, but obviously they weren't making that fabric for us specifically. And so eventually, you know, they, the fabric changed, uh, still worked great for sails, didn't work for shelters anymore. So, you know, we didn't have shelters for a couple of years while we were looking for replacement fabric. And while we eventually found it, it was a little heavier and the shelter got a little bigger um, you know, it's factory tape seams and things like that. So it got up to its current weight, which I don't recall off the top of my head, but, uh, the Dyneema composite version that I just looked at was actually 16.1 ounces. Wow. 16.1. So we'll call that the one. We'll call that the one. <laughs> I think that's going to be the one D or something like that for the Dyneema. Okay. Um, and by the way, for those who are listening, occasionally you might hear uh, uh, water or maybe wind. We are hiking up the Sweeney Ridge Trail uh, in San Bruno, California, which is a historic trail because it is taking us to the site where Portola, the Spanish explorer, was the first European to get, get lay eyes on 
the Bay of San Francisco. And nobody had seen it for over 200 years of ships going back and forth, never went into the entrance. In fact, Portola himself, who discovered it and saw it, he himself didn't take his sailing boat, sailing ship into the bay. It was only about 10 years later where Ayala went in to the bay uh, with an actual boat and parked at Angel Island in the Bay Area. And while he was parked at Angel Island and moored there, he shot himself accidentally in the foot. And so he didn't even get to explore. He had to stay on the island while his friends went around to explore. So that's kind of the history. And it's a historic trail. Very easy to trail to hike up on. But in case you're wondering why we're starting to huff and puff, it's because uh, <laughs> we're going uphill. Yeah. I, uh, we read uh, recently on a road trip, listened to Two Years Before the Mast, uh, you know, description of... Um, the very early California, who was part of Mexico at that point, of sailing up and down. And he, and he talks about uh, their ship sailing into the bay and reprovisioning or picking up uh, cattle skins, whatever they were doing. But it, it's just intriguing to, you know, to imagine those descriptions of way back then and how different it was from today. Right. No, it's so true. I'm curious about the future. You're looking at what's the, like the hot fabric. I mean, right now, Cuban fiber was kind of like the the new innovation that really transformed a lot of the industry but do you see anything else coming down the pipe that's getting popular a lot of the stuff the innovations if i understand it come from the sailing industry well we've um we've actually at this point gotten contacts uh with fabric manufacturers so we've actually had some we're, we're starting to custom weave some fabric so we can get uh characteristics that we want um different threads messing with the thread count and then you know we get an exclusive on it for a couple of years before uh, anyone else can use that fabric um, and so it's you know it's minor minor tweaks I guess of, of trying to get more durability out of the same weight or uh, you know obviously reduce the weight a little bit um, so that's kind of areas we're expanding into okay but there's no name yet of these custom fabrics you haven't branded it yet no, we uh, people are big on like branding and marketing stuff, and we just want to make great gear um, and you know tell people about it. Glenn, what do you think is the most common error that novice backpackers make besides, of course, packing too much? Well, obviously, you know, packing too much is the big one. Uh, people tend to pack for their fears. So if you were cold on your last trip you throw in an extra jacket or you take a heavier sleeping bag and if you were wet well then you carry extra stuff so uh you know if you can fight that that natural response to uh pack for your fears uh and fight the last battle as it were um one of the big areas especially when you get to lighter weights is food becomes depending on the length of the trip a pretty significant weight on percentage terms. On percentage terms. And most people don't know how much food they need. Um, so, you know, it never looks like very much when you're sitting on your kitchen table. <laughs> so it's like, well, I'll just throw in a couple extra bars. And then, well, just in case something happens, I should have an extra meal or two. Um, and so I always recommend people to, you know, weigh their food before and after trips and then divide by the number of days. And pretty quickly you'll hone in on, you know, what your personal number of pounds per day that you need and then I so I know what that is for me and and that's what I pack and I don't take more and uh, so coming back without extra food weight is is a good way to 
generally lose quite a few pounds. That's a pretty advanced technique, and uh, it's something so advanced I don't even do it myself because, but I should um, because I'm horrible at that. I often, in fact, I almost always carry too much weight uh, with food. I always come back with something, and I haven't gotten very scientific about it. And I should follow your advice. The only uh, the only reason I do carry, I, I go, I err to bringing too much food, is that. A, I can do it because I'm carrying such lightweight gear that I can afford to splurge a little bit on food. And also, the few times where I have run out of food, I realize I start collapsing. I mean, I'm not, I don't have a whole lot of body fat. And I just, I realize the insurance of having that power, that energy, those calories, um, is such a psychological uh, benefit that... I, if I don't have and I start running out of gas, I can pretty much go forever as long as I have calories. I can keep walking, I can keep going. But if I don't have those calories, I don't have much store of fat, I start slowing down. That's just my thing. But but I agree with you that I, I think that getting more scientific about it, especially on a sure hike where you kind of know exactly you're gonna do this many miles, very low probability of getting lost or needing those extra an extra day uh, for bad weather or whatever. Yeah, and I obviously people need to take their personal physiology into account. Most of us, you know, don't have your problem of <laughs> uh, low body fat. So, uh, you know, I could survive a day without food. I, you know, I'd be unhappy about it, uh, but I would survive it. But yeah, the goal is obviously to be light to enjoy the backcountry. So if you get to a point where you're not enjoying it or you don't make it back out of the backcountry, well, that kind of defeats the purpose. But that definitely is great advice and something I should follow is just getting more scientific and realizing exactly how many uh, kilograms of weight you're going to have. By the way, speaking about kilograms, do you, do you, I really wish we would move on to the metric system in the United States. This is like my, one of my big pet peeves, <laughs> um, but uh, maybe it doesn't bother you. You're just used to it. You know, I'm I'm used to it, but uh, we have a, a couple of sons, and the one thing that I always grill them on, uh, one is number of square feet in an acre, just because I'm a civil engineer, and so I just think that's someone everyone should know. Which is? Which is 43,560. Of course. Uh, but <laughs> the other is, you know, how many grams uh, in a pound? Right. Uh-huh. Uh, and how many? Isn't it 1,200? Sorry, 2,200? No, it's 454 grams in a pound. Oh, a pound, sorry. I'm thinking of yeah. how many uh, pounds in, in, yeah, I'm thinking the inverse, sorry. And then the other thing our kids know, and they know I'm gonna grill them every time we see them, is um, you know, grams in a pound and then centimeters in an inch, which is 2.54. Okay. So 2.54, 454, you know, you're kind of dealing with the same numbers. And you know, with those two numbers in a calculator, you can, easily do the conversion but that's not the same as thinking in kilograms which i right so you can do and you you think in in metric uh i'm not i'm not there yet <laughs> yeah i just hope that one day our our we're the last country in the world to hold on to an antiquated imperial measurement system um i think uh liberia and uh what's the other country i think it's um starts with an m uh, it's like Burma, but it's not called Burma anymore. It's oh, Myanmar. Myanmar, yeah, exactly. I think the, but I think Myanmar's already converted to metric as well too. What's your favorite backpack and shelter in all the products that you offer? Because you have a lot of SKUs. 
Yes, and um, actually, my so my go-to backpack is the Murmur. I mean, that's the one that uh, I've personally been most involved in the design, and that's the one that I carry on the majority of my trips. Uh, you know, if I have to carry a bear canister, uh, I have an old G5 that I might take. Um, but basically, it's the Murmur. And in terms of shelter, if... Uh, if I think it's probably not going to rain, I'll take my uh, Cuban fiber DCF uh, wedge, which is just that 2.7 ounce shelter. Very simple, small. Um, I have had it in rain, but it's not the ideal shelter if you know it's going to rain. Uh, if I know it's going to be bad weather, I'll take a larger uh, tarp out of um, DCF. That's a spin, uh, spin twin? Well, the uh, Cuban version of the of the twin, yeah, oh, okay, the spin okay. twin, yeah. Um, and then if I know there's going to be bugs, which I, you know, generally try and avoid uh, by picking the season, by not camping near water, camping near a ridge, so I got a breeze. Um, but if I know I'm just in for it, then I'll then I'll take a one. Okay. So, and the murmur, actually, now now you mentioned the murmur. On the PCT, my Mayu, my hiking partner, she had, I think, the Whisper, which would preceded the Murmur. Is that right? Oh yeah, the Whisper, the old G6, very basic. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's what she like she had, I think. Three and a half ounces or something like that. That's exactly. Crazy. I yeah, think yeah. I have one of those somewhere too. Yeah. yeah. So it was the because Murmur added an ounce or two of weight, I think, to the Whisper. Uh, yeah, it's uh, you know, and it's over the years, it's it's gotten a little more robust and a little more featured, so it's up to eight ounces now. It takes a lot of discipline to have such a, a sub eight ounce backpack because you have to be careful when you put it down on the ground. You don't want to just throw it and toss it and that kind of stuff. And it's just a level of discipline that most backpackers just don't have. Yeah, you just have you have less margin. And, and for some things, I think people have done the entire Pacific Crest Trail with it. But obviously for a you know longer hike where just day after day you're going to be uh, grinding on this and, and relying on it. And bushwhacking. Uh, and well, yeah, bushwhacking—it's not recommended for bushwhacking. Uh, so sometimes, like uh, section O on the PCT, we like to call it section overgrown. Yeah, well, that could be a problem. You know, if you're climbing over under trees and things like that, that could be uh, not the best pack for that. Tell me about the crotch pot. Is it something in your crotch or what? Well, uh, the crotch pot is kind of the the third way between, kind of halfway between no cook, where you're just eating cold food and cooking where you have to take a stove uh, and a pot and all that stuff and it's basically using your body heat to warm your food and everyone knows if you've had a cold night you know if your hands are cold you put them in or near your crotch because you know that's just armpits armpits right you know your core you're trying to get close to your core so this came up on a trip uh that i was taking with um Henry Shires, Ron Moak, and Brian Frankel, kind of the brain trust hike we used to do. And um, we actually sell this. It's it's a, a, a small pouch out of uh, Cuban fiber with a couple of carabiners that you can slip down into your pants. You put its size so that you can put a, a Ziploc bag inside it. So you simply put your uh, kind of instant rehydrated uh, meal in the water and hike for an hour or two. And then you've got hot dinner. Well, maybe warm dinner. Warm dinner. Yeah, it's a, yeah. <laughs> Depending on how hot you are. And, That's true. you know, our tagline is you're hotter than you think. <laughs> That's great. How much does the thing cost, the crotch pot? 
Uh, I think it's like 20 bucks. Made in USA. It's a, yeah. you know, great product. Amazing. I hadn't even heard of it. Uh, but that, yeah, it sounds perfect for me because ever since the Connell Divide Trail, I no longer cook when I, I just got used to it. I figured if I could go seven months without cooking, I can go any length of trail without cooking and, and do fine with it. And I was even in the in snowy, over about a thousand kilometers of snow. And that was, I didn't really miss the cook that much. I mean, the cooking ability, ability to cook. Well, I will uh, make sure that I get a crotch pot to you. And then, you know, maybe next book you write could be like recipes for the crotch pot, things like that. <laughs> that sounds like a really attractive book title. <laughs> well, you know, you might get some sales. You just never know. My mom might buy it, maybe. <laughs> maybe, maybe. You definitely won't. <laughs> hey, I'm always, you know, I can I can learn from anybody. So uh, I'm sure I could pick up some good re I have figured out a few things that... Like mashed potatoes don't work in a crotch pot, so I don't recommend those. Really? Why not? Can't you just mix water with dried flakes of mashed potatoes? And Yes, you can. The problem is they rehydrate too quickly, so it becomes like a, a congealed mess and doesn't really warm up. Uh -huh. So it's better things like uh, couscous or instant rice, yeah. uh, um, dried bean flakes, stuff like that that you can put in with the water and then you, as you hike, you warm the water and it slowly rehydrates and you end up with a warm meal. That's a great thing. When I was on the Conrail Divide Trail, I would take couscous and I would uh, then go to bed and put the water in there as long as it's not gonna freeze overnight. And then in the morning, after having soaked for eight hours, I would eat it cold in the morning and it would work. Yeah. But, uh, but this sounds much better because it's a little bit warmer. Yeah, no, and it's it's uh, it's the same concept, and and oftentimes uh, through hikers, of you know, they'll put something in a bag, put it in their pack in the sun for a couple hours, or behind their neck, something like that. So it's the same same concept. What did you? A lot of backpackers, you know, there there's some people are are innovative. They like to make their own gear and that kind of stuff. And then several people have been inspired by your example and gone off to create companies of the cottage industry of backpacking. And then some of them have succeeded, some of them have not succeeded, some of them have failed. What did you underestimate when you were creating Gossamer gear? Something that really like, whoa, I never saw, realized how complicated or difficult this was going to be as far as building a backpacking company, gear-related company. Well, and I never, I never really intended to build a backpacking gear company. I mean, I was just making stuff for myself and then kind of felt bad for other people and tried to figure out a way to to make a few things to help them out and it did i i underestimated the number of people that actually wanted lighter gear um so that was the first big surprise and then probably the biggest challenge since um you know i've always been an engineer so it's always been a the backpacking company is i don't i've never taken a salary from it so i didn't really need to build it uh so we've grown very slowly just uh, you know, in response to demand. So that's been a blessing, but the, the big challenge has always been uh, the manufacturing. You know, we started uh, with my wife, Francie, and a couple ladies on the, on the street making, making gear and then found a uh, guy in Seattle. And then we've had, you know, hippies in Colorado and some druggie in Albuquerque. And, you know, it's been... <laughs> It's been just a getting quality products made is always a challenge. I know? thought you outsourced some things to Asia, never? Yeah, no. Now, now the stuff's made in Asia, and it, you know, that works great. I mean, the quality is just 
impeccable. It's amazing. Okay. And uh, when did you make that transition into Asia? What year? Sure. Or was it a slowly process? No, it's probably a couple years ago. Okay. And then all of a sudden the quality jumped up, and then I imagine also the 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 price went down a bit. Yeah, the price went down a bit. Um, we're not super price conscious. We didn't go uh, overseas to save money. Um, it was just the quality. You know, we just couldn't get both the quality and consistency here in the U.S. and also the scalability. You know, as more and more people found out about the gear and we got more and more orders, we just couldn't find people that could keep up in a consistent manner. But some things are still made in the U.S., like the Crotchpot. Crotchpot still made in the U.S., yes. That's kind of a specialty product. Not everyone can, you know, take full advantage of that product. <laughs> and it does go in the front of the crotch. Can you put it in the back? Can you be like a butt, uh, butt, butt stove? Uh, I have not heard that. Now, I, we have some uh, lady trail ambassadors that use it in their bra, and they say it works well there. Okay. <laughs> the bra thing. All right. How about the uh, armpit cooking? Well, that you know, there have been discussions that you could have a whole line, and so you could have, you know, your main course in your pants, and then maybe a side dish <laughs> under your left arm, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Now, Glenn, you've hiked thousands and thousands of miles, or kilometers, as I like to say. Um, have you been in a situation or situations where you were potentially in, in deep danger? Well, I think I think it was Andrew Skirka who termed the phrase, uh, you know, you have lightweight, then you have ultralight, and then super ultralight. And I think it was Andrew Skirka that says, yeah, and then you have stupid light, right. uh, which is when you pack too light... <laughs> for the anticipated conditions and your skill level. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah. Hold on, sorry, let's talk about that, the skill level, because I think that's something that's so misunderstood among people who don't know much about ultralight backpacking. Yeah, I think you can go, you know, you can certainly get to a pretty light pack weight uh, just with advanced materials. So, you know, you can get a pack that does everything you're used to, has a little frame, padded, hip belt and shoulder, all that kind of stuff for, call it two pounds today instead of six pounds, you know, five or 10 years ago. And that's just because of the materials. Um, but to get your pack weight down beyond a certain level, um, you need to pick up some additional skills. So for instance, uh, if you need a tent, um, you're going to have to carry a certain weight. If you get the skills to be comfortable and safe in a tarp, then you can save some weight over a tent. But it requires skills, tarping requires skills beyond what is setting up a regular tent. For example, needing to find the right location for that tarp. I mean, just to, to be in a sheltered position where some people might say, I want to be on the crest and have the great view, and then all of a sudden that may not be best for the tarp. Well, exactly, and the, another example is uh, sleeping bags. You know, if you, uh, due to catabatic effects, you know, you can often- Explain catabatic effects. Well, cold air settles. Mm -hmm. So you can, I don't know if you've been hiking along a trail in the early morning, you know, if it dips in, and say you're wearing shorts, you, you notice that it's colder. Right, by the, especially by the creeks and streams. Exactly, so if you know how air moves, uh, you can take less sleeping bag because you're going to select an area that you're not in a cold air drainage. If you're unaware of that, 
you may need to carry a heavier sleeping bag because you want to be able to just roll out your sleeping bag wherever. Right. So that's, a, you know, additional knowledge and skills allow you to take less weight. Right. And that's a, a key thing. So be, was it a stupid light situation where you kind of screwed yourself over? Uh, there have been a few. Yeah. Uh, usually my wife doesn't find out about them until years later. Uh, <laughs> But, um, yeah, there was time uh, my buddy Reed and I were on the Pacific Crest Trail. And, what section? Uh, Whitewater Canyon. And uh, we were walking along. There was water flowing, a lot of water flowing when we crossed it. And so we, weren't, we didn't have a lot of water in our packs, but we thought, again, to save weight, we thought, well, why tank up here if the trail's following the river? Right. You know, we'll wait till the high point wait till the high point or wait till the trail veers away from the river to fill up with water makes sense to me no sense care yeah made sense to us but it's also better quality water usually the higher you go up yeah i mean that's pretty big drainage but yeah you know so lots of reasons to do that the thing is in this particular case you couldn't actually i mean the trail was you know 50 yards off the off the wash so you couldn't actually see it so an hour later the water's gone you know, it's it's underground. It's oh, still there, obviously, because we'd seen it. We'd crossed it an hour earlier, but it was nowhere near the surface. So there's no way you're going to go back. <laughs> well, we had to, because oh, at that point we were no water, oh, shit. and we didn't know what was up ahead. So, mm-hmm. you know, we were dehydrated. Uh, we drew straws, and Reed actually went back. <laughs> I kind of I I kind of put my head under a bush and tried to conserve what hydration I had but never really recovered from that and we got further up the trail uh, and I got chills so it's about 85 degrees out and I'm inside my down sleeping bag shivering wow Uh, these are all the effects of of severe dehydration yeah Uh, you know and I slept for probably slept for an hour and then uh, then we got up and had dinner and kept hiking Amazing. <laughs> uh, so what was the lesson learned from that is obviously hydrate up even though you think you might not need to hydrate up or how? Yeah, uh, you know, water is one thing. Um, it's a very heavy thing, but it has severe consequences for cutting it too close, you know, severe dehydration. So. Much more so than cutting close to your food. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I've actually cut the water too close twice, didn't learn the first time. So, uh, yeah, that's an area that you know, I build a little more, a little more margin in the other uh, experience. And again, I was with Reed. I don't know. Wait why. a second. We're hiking and you don't have any water on you. No, that's true. But <laughs> also know it's only 1.7 miles. So I'm okay. And it's not a uh, hundred degrees or let's say 40 degrees Celsius. How about that? Right. <laughs> so, uh, another time I was hiking on the Pacific Crest Trail and it was, it had to be early season, late season. It was snow on the ground. Um, and I forget, it was getting dark, I think. And my buddy Reed is looking for his gloves. Um, this is the same Reed you had the other problem with? Yeah, the same Reed. You're probably <laughs> detecting a pattern here. <laughs> Reed, are you listening? <laughs> so there was once we were hiking at night because Reed and I had a habit of uh, when the sun went down, it's like if we weren't tired, we'd just keep hiking until we were tired. And so we're hiking along the PCT. It was a roadwalk section um, at night one night. And uh, we don't talk much, but I, I go, yeah, Reed, here we are again hiking at night. And he says, 
you know, Glenn, I think you're the only person I hike at night with. And I go, Reed, you're the only person I hike at night with. <laughs> so, yeah, the two of us hiking, maybe not the best combination. Uh, but there was this time when we were on the PCT around uh, Mount San Jacinto, and Reed's looking for his gloves, and he can't find them. And he's, you know, finally stops, and he's, like, taking stuff out of his pack. And he, he said, I don't know where they are. I can't find them. And I realized, again, this is, you know, you want some training. It's like, okay, he's beginning stages of hypothermia. You know, he's not... He's losing, you know, he can't find his gloves, thinks he lost them. And so I said, no, nah, here, you know, put something warm on, sit right here, let me look for him. And I found him because uh -huh. I wasn't hypothermic yet. Right. But it was like, it's having that knowledge and being a little ahead of the curve. So, you know, before you get to that point, you find them before you start to lose your mental faculties. Right. And, and, and sometimes you lose your mental faculties so much that you don't realize that you have socks, extra pair of socks that you could wear as a placeholder for gloves. Exactly. And the, the, the insidious part of like hypothermia is, you know, you lose your mental facilities before you realize you're losing your mental facilities. Right. <laughs> that is that's the real danger of it. Yeah. A lot of people ask me all the time, you know, I want to get sponsored on my hike. I want to go on the Pacific Crest Trail or whatever. Um, and they always ask me for advice on getting sponsored. Uh, what do you, you guys do have an ambassador program, which is basically your kind of way of sponsoring people. What do you look for in a trail ambassador? What would you tell somebody who's listening to this and says, I want to be sponsored to walk the wall of China or something? Um, our ambassador program has, it's kind of changed over the years. And so, um, you know, generally we're looking for uh, people who are going to help us with our mission of getting people out in the outdoors. So um, we've, although we certainly have some ambassadors that, that fall in the category of, you know, super hikers that are record holders and FKT holders. FKT is faster fastest known time. Um, we're really looking for more people that... Uh, you know, kind of ordinary hikers could relate to uh, say oh wow that's something cool they did I'm gonna learn something someone that can provide some you know interesting content for our newsletters things like that and so uh, people who are maybe also good photographers might be uh, be interesting if they they go out to the a lot and take because Instagram has become a really powerful force recently yeah it, it's funny you should say that because last night uh, here in San Francisco I had, uh, we had dinner with two people that I only know from Instagram. Uh, the first guy was the first person to follow me on Twitter, I don't know how many years ago. <laughs> um, and, you know, I follow, he's uh, quite active in the outdoors and also an amazing cook. So, you know, he's always got these amazing pictures of the fresh dinners that he's whipping up from farmer's market stuff. He doesn't make whip them up in his crotch? No, no. <laughs> he's got a very nice house in San Francisco. Uh, and then another is a gal, um, Shell Traveled, uh, C-H-E-L-L-E Traveled on Instagram. And she takes amazing photos. It's uh, hard to believe she has a job. I mean, she gets out a lot. She loves being outside. So, yeah, the ability to you know, take amazing photos, document. Yeah, certainly helps. Yeah. Glenn, how do you see the transformation of how technology is impacting backpacking? Backpacking is a quintessentially simple 
kind of get back to basics, kind of something that would make uh, Ted Kaczynski proud, <laughs> get away from technology and all that stuff. And yet uh, a lot of naturally it kind of infuses everywhere technology and we see it not just in GPS, but uh, all sorts of stuff that now all of a sudden carrying a solar panel or some way to charge up your batteries is becoming an issue. Uh, so how do you feel about technology and its role in backpacking? Do you, what do you like about it? What do you dislike about it? What do you think? Well, for me personally, um, with the, you know, I'm generally going out with like a sub five pound base weight. Um, you know, technology tends to be heavy. I mean, paper maps are light. Uh, my watch has a compass on it and an altimeter. And so any technology I take is generally going to add a pretty big hit to my, to my base pack weight. So I've been, and, and as you kind of touched on, part of the appeal to me in the backcountry is honing my gear to the essentials and, you know, less than the, the minimum amount of stuff I need, I guess, to be safe and comfortable in the outdoors. And so if I'm relying on technology and if a battery goes dead, I'm in trouble, you know, is, is counterproductive to me. Um, that being said, you know, I recently, uh, on, on a couple trips, I've actually taken my phone uh, on the trip because it's the lightest camera I own. Right. Uh, so I may only use it for a camera, but then um, I recently on a, a section of the PCT uh, pulled up uh, Gut Hooks app, and I mean that's amazing. I, I totally see why people use it. I mean the amount of data available and knowing where you are, where the next water is, where the next campsite is. I mean it's it's incredible. I, I get why people why people use it. Um, and gut Hook. How do you spell Gut Hook? Just like it sounds, gut hook. Yeah, yeah. I know. I've heard a lot about it, and uh, I haven't used it yet um, because I have these kind of mixed feelings myself. I mean, the other thing is that what? But then there's some people who are so anti-technology, and sometimes I want to shake them and say, "But guess what? You're wearing a Cuban fiber fabric on top of your body, which is, by the way, a high. You know, it's a technology component. It's not a natural. It's not wool. It's not cotton. And so there's also practically everything you are wearing is synthetic and it should be by the way because synthetic is often better than natural fibers in so many applications yeah i think that's a good point that technology is more than just electronics um, and it's you know it's it's great to use i mean nobody is hiking in the heavy leather hobnail boots and stuff that they had back then because there's lighter better stuff right where do you see the industry going? Do you think it will get to a point where we'll have, I keep imagining like a, a space blanket that has like an electrical dial that you can turn into and say, I want to set it to 25 degrees Celsius and have a nice cozy night in my sleeping bag at the weight, you know, like any kind of applications like that down the pipe where you see uh, really, really pushing the ultralight or do you see it always burdened by battery, heavy battery technology? Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, if we're dreaming out loud here, you know, in the future, maybe there's something that, uh, you know, kind of like a la Dune, you know, pulls moisture out of the air or pulls energy out of solar radiation or something. That would be interesting, but... Uh, More efficiently than the current solar panels. 
Right, right. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. To me, complexity is not always my friend. You know, I like, I like simple things. Um, so I like like a pack that you can fix with the, you know, a paper clip and uh, dental floss <laughs> has some certain advantages sometimes. Right. Where do you, or looking forward in your crystal ball for Gossamer Gear five, ten years from now, where do you vision, what's your vision of seeing it go, where is it going? Well, we're not really uh, driven by, you know, sales or marketing or anything like that. We just, we're going to continue on doing what we've been doing is trying to make, you know, functional light gear uh, that allows people to enjoy the outdoors more. So we'll just keep doing that and see where it goes. Got it. Um, and is there... Currently, you, you just released the Ranger 35 backpack that I'm wearing right now as, I, as we speak. Any other uh, things coming out in 2019? Uh, well, or 2020, uh, sorry. As I, as I mentioned, we are um, coming out with uh, Cuban fiber or, or Dyneema composite fabric, DCF, versions of our 1 and 2 tent. Uh, I have, um, I'm working on a, you know, project for an 8-ounce tent, uh, maybe called the naked one uh that we're we're working on that's a little further behind um and then we're you know we've got some uh travel bags uh that we're working on kind of applying the function you know just the essentials and taking advantage of the technology in terms of fabrics to lighten the load of more traditional uh travel bags um and then uh I also have a, a neighbor who uh, wants me to make a, a bike packing frame bag for his bike and that he wants to be lighter than what's available. So, uh, you know, I may tinker around with that. So we'll just see see where things go. One Many years ago, this was at least 10, maybe 15 years ago or something like that, somebody told me that, oh, Gossamer Gear, one thing I, there's that all the small cottage industry companies unlike let's say north face or mountain hardware um, the, the smaller companies they have strongly influenced by their founders and so one person said you know glenn van pesky because he's tall he's nearly two meters i love metric <laughs> um no you're probably about one meter 90 but anyway you're a tall guy so therefore all your shelters are built for tall people in other words so therefore it's, they're spacious and and nice um and uh, but the but then they said but he lives in, he used to, uh, this back when you used to live in San Diego not used to rain so it's not as waterproof as some other stuff do you do you think that's a fair statement nowadays or ever well I think in in general yes that's true uh, I mean our early pack line uh, the G4 G5 G6 kind of as my base weight and needs got lighter I designed a new pack and so that's kind of how we we came up with that and definitely uh you know i'm a tall guy uh grant seibel the president of gossamer gear is a tall and big guy so yeah our stuff you know generally is bigger and you've got room to room to move around um you know as far as the waterproof thing yeah the spinnaker fabric we had you know there were there were issues with waterproofness um, it depended on the batch and that's why eventually, I mean, that's why we were out of shelters for a couple of years until we could fix that. But, you know, with the fabrics we have now, I mean, they're waterproof. We've tested them with a suitor tester, they're factory tape seam. So the waterproofness is not, I don't think that's a valid 
uh, complaint today. I agree. Uh, we'll take a break here because we're at the ridge right now. And the wind is going to pick up a bit, and we're overlooking what's called the Portola Discovery Site, where uh, the first European laid eyes onto San Francisco Bay with his uh, companions. And that is the end of my interview with Glenn Van Pesky. You're probably wondering, why such an abrupt end? Why didn't we, like, have a nice goodbye? Well, we did have a nice goodbye, but just not while I was recording. And the reason is, is that while we were hiking up, one thing I didn't mention is that I had a dog with me. Her name was Daphne. And this is a dog that would just never leave my side. I mean, I go to the bathroom. It follows me into the bathroom. It goes everywhere with me. If I just walk across the room, it will get up and go within a meter of me. This dog is extremely clingy, super nice and sweet, doesn't say a word, but just wants to be near me all the time. And so I thought, well, we're going to go hiking together. I don't need to put a leash on her because she's pretty clingy. Well, I should have gotten a clue when all of a sudden Daphne started getting ahead of us, just a bit too far ahead of us while we were hiking up. But she always kind of stayed within sight. And we just kept talking and talking and talking. And eventually we got to the ridge and there the trail divided into two different directions and Daphne was nowhere to be seen and I was like oh shit what do we do now so we could either go left or we could go right and then if we go right the trail divides into other areas so I went right which then the trail divided into two or three different places and I told Glenn to go left so as a result when we got to that part of the conversation all of a sudden we quickly realized Daphne's not here, and so we abruptly ended the podcast. I went running along the ridge to the right. He went running along the ridge to the left. And eventually, Glenn met somebody who had seen the dog, Daphne, lower down on the mountain. So somehow she had gotten off the trail, and then we walked by her, and somehow she got back on the trail and couldn't see us and started to go down the mountain back to the car. So when I got wind of that, he called me on the cell phone, and then fortunately I was able to kind of do a shortcut, and I eventually found Daphne. So we had a happy ending, but boy, it was a scary moment there. And in the end, uh, I had to go rush to meet Rejoice somewhere, and so we couldn't like pick up where we left off. We couldn't even get a photo together. We were such in a hurry by the end because we had lost about half an hour chasing after Daphne. That's the long story as to what exactly happened and why we ended abruptly. Still, I hope you enjoyed the interview. Make sure you give me some feedback. Also, I want to give a shout out to a few of my Patreon members who have really helped me out a ton. One of them is Renee Steelman. She sponsored my talk in Phoenix, Arizona for her foundation, which helps people get wheelchair-accessible minivans. And she had me speak in front of her community at Rio Verde, which is near Phoenix, Arizona. Very happy about that. Also, another shout-out to Tammy Way, who's a very loyal supporter on Patreon, and she's always commenting and giving feedback and sending us questions. I really appreciate that as well. Then there's some people who just never say much on Patreon, and still, they're out there supporting me. Then there's uh, Kathy, who also has uh, supported me tremendously on Patreon. She, if you notice, a lot of the Patreons is sponsored by the Health Access Sumbawa, and that is all because Kathy helps sponsor that. 
Shout out to her as well. And that concludes this episode of the WanderLearn podcast, where we explore travel technology and transformation. If you'd like to see the show notes with links to what we talked about, or if you'd like to comment on the show, or if you'd like to ask me a question, then go to wanderlearn.com and click on the latest episode. If you'd like to connect with me, just remember F Tapon. That's my first initial and my last name. F Tapon is the username I use on all social media. You can also get to my website by going to ftapon.com. Here's one last reason to remember F Tapon. If you like what I do and want to get rewarded for supporting my projects, then go to patreon.com slash, yep, you guessed it, ftapon. That's where you can pick up some sweet rewards for as little as $1 a month. And remember, subscribing to the WanderLearn podcast helps, but downloading each episode helps even more. Please share the podcast, review it, and sign up for my newsletter at wanderlearn.com. This show was edited by Rejoice Tapon. The music was composed by Eric Stratman. This is Francis Tapon, encouraging you to wander and learn. <laughs>